This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at Sentry.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. You know, it's mighty good to be here today, Chuck. Ah, yes, it is. Uh, David Richards. Oh, hello. <laughs> I know it feels like it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, right? It does. <laughs> that, that's, what, uh, that's what my gym teacher would say in junior high when it was our day to run a couple miles. So, yeah, it <laughs> wasn't a good day those days. Anyway, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week we have a special guest and that's Nate Berkopek. Hello. Uh, now, Nate, do you want to give us just a brief introduction? I know that you've uh, done some writing and blogging and speaking. Uh, yeah. So I guess nowadays I describe myself as a freelance Ruby performance consultant. Um, so I write... Uh, and work on uh, Ruby application performance, specifically uh, Rails applications. Um, and uh, I've been doing that. Well, I've been, I've been in Ruby for uh, seven, seven years now, but uh, specifically in the performance space for the last three or four. Awesome. And uh, yeah, we, we ran across some of your uh, blog posts and things and thought we'd have you on and talk about Ruby performance. All right. Well, what do you want to know? <laughs> no, we got to get into more about your background here. Didn't I see you on TV one time? Uh, yes, you did. You did. Where was that? Uh, I was on the ABC reality show Shark Tank when I was 19 years old. Oh, no way. Are, are yeah. you the one that introduced that, that, um, that thing that you put in your underwear that if you let gas out, it like makes it not stink? I think that was no, you, right? No, it wasn't okay, me. Wasn't you. I think that might have been the same episode, though. I, I'm in the same episode with some really funny ones. I think, I don't know if it was, it was definitely the same season. I don't know if it was the same episode where they had the guy where it was like a, a, a golf club, a plastic golf club you would pee in, where oh, like man. it was yeah. like a, like a, a, a tube. Like, a, like a tube. Yeah. 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 That was his, that was his what every golfer needs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. There's, uh, there's some interesting ones on that show. <laughs> But yeah, it was fun. It was crazy. I mean, they take you out to that. You're like in LA on the Sony Pictures back lot. It's like the whole... Th I think I walked through the How I Met Your Mother uh, set to like get to the, you know, the Shark Tank set. Um, wow. They, wow. It's like, you know, there's like a bunch of people running around. It's like the... You know when they... On Shark Tank, when they... Uh, they the first shot is always someone like kind of wa walking down a hallway towards the sharks. It's, like, it's right. a forced perspective hallway. So it's like really short and small, like when you walk in and then it's like huge at the back. So it looks bigger on TV. Um, it's just, it was just, a, a you know, crazy to sort of be in the eye of the storm of, of television, I guess. That's, That's pretty cool. awesome. My, my closest claim to fame is I've been an extra on two movies now. Oh, and wow. I'm even in the credits on one of them. So yeah. Nice. Wow. Although I didn't sell anything. What movies? <laughs> uh, two movies. Uh, one of them is uh, Waffle Street. And if you go to Netflix, you can see it. I'm actually in the trailer. It's kind of funny. And then the other one is I was a body double on a movie called Small Town Crime, which was also just released um, on uh, Netflix, I believe. <laughs> Dude, I'm so handsome. They can't keep away from me, right? <laughs> wow. What? Totally derailment. Sorry, Nate. That's all right. Very cool. <laughs> So you've gone down the road of Ruby performance. What led you into that whole area? Hmm. Well, you know, initially, actually, well, so I had a job um, as kind of like loan developer at this e-commerce company that sold a, a coffee subscription box. And uh, 
I, I just sort of like naturally fell into really enjoying performance work when I was there. Um, I've always enjoyed uh, the parts of development that are more easily quantified. So one of the things I've always loved about performance work is that, you know, uh, you can so easily say, all right, well, this is going to, I want to make this thing 25% faster. You create the benchmark, you know, you make the thing faster and then bam, like it's actually 25% faster. It's not like a user story where maybe you do complete the user story like completely perfectly, like the PM said you should, but then you get back to the customer like, oh, this isn't what I really wanted, right? But like performance work is so much more cut and dry in that respect. So I always loved that part of it. And I think I just started doing that stuff more, um, just sort of gravitating towards that work more for fun and uh, started writing about it. Um, the first thing I ever wrote really that went big was actually about Turbolinks and why I like Turbolinks. Um, and, uh, you know, why blogging. do you like Turbolinks? Uh, well, I just think it's so much, it's the, the cost to benefit ratio for, um, front end performance is, is so good with Turbolinks. Um, the costs, especially on a greenfield application, uh, are quite small to get, to get set up. And, you know, if you've got a new application you can, you can just commit to saying that we're going to do this the Turbolinks way. Um, then it's really super easy to use. And, uh, the performance is great. I mean, it's like, uh, the, my conference talk slash the post that I later wrote about it was about, could you create a, you know, basically instantaneous, uh, an instantaneously responding web application with Turbolinks, which is sort of the thing we've always talked about. Well, this has to be done with, um, uh, JavaScript single page apps, you know, we, to get that instantaneous response that feels like a native desktop application, it must be done in, uh, in a single page framework or whatever. And uh, I wanted to see if it was even technically possible to do it with Turbolinks. And, you know, if you live in the United States and your server is also in the United States, then technically, yeah, it's, you can get pretty close. Um, so yeah, it always, it, that, that sort of initially got me interested. And then DHH retweeted it and it like blew up and I was like, Oh, okay. Like if you take a contrarian position in performance, like uh, people will read it and get interested. And uh, so I just sort of kept blogging from there and it sort of got me to where I am now. That's funny. So I remember when it was trendy to bag on turbo links. That, that was sort of the peak of that time too. It's not really trendy anymore. No, uh, but back then it really was. Yeah. But I haven't, re- I, you know, I've heard a few people say I use it and I like it. I've, I haven't heard anyone really be super bullish on it either. So true. And, but I, I do think it's funny that really the top three of the top, well, no, I think it's four, actually. Four of like the, the largest Rails deployments in the world, Shopify, Basecamp, uh, Cookpad, and GitHub, all use Turbolinks or something very similar. Um, oh, Git, GitHub uses PJAX. Uh, it's, it's basically the same thing. It's just taking parts of HTML from the server and inserting them somewhere else in the page. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't replace the whole page like Turbolinks does. Uh, but the whole file explorer has always worked like that. Um, it's just taking uh, HTML from... Uh, github.com replacing the HTML in the file explorer and just going from there. Um, so it's for, for a position that's not very popular in like the blogosphere, it's extremely well subscribed at the upper echelons of mm-hmm. uh, rails applications. One of the beauties of, uh, of Turbolinks also is that it's not rail specific. In fact, you don't even need rails at all to use it. What I do on a daily basis, work on a project in, in um, Phoenix, Elixir in Phoenix. And with that, I've, you know, just, I think with just two lines of code, I was able to add Turbolinks into it and it just worked out of the box. It's really great. Now, I know that uh, I, I don't imagine when we talk about performance, front end is not really what you're talking about. Your focus is more on the back end. Um, uh, I would I would disagree with that. Um, so really? I, yeah. So I actually sell like a big course on Rails performance um, called the Complete Guide to Rails Performance, and yeah. it has it has four sub modules, four like big heading chapters. The first one is just sort of concepts, benchmarking, profiling, measurement. Uh, the second one is uh, front. And I spend a quarter of that course talking about front-end performance because the way I look at performance work, there are really two benefits. There are two things and the, the, the business case and the company will decide which of these two things is more important. The first case is kind of the one we're all used to. Um, back-end performance and making things more quote-unquote scalable, making the, the server deployment cost less. If I can take a 200 millisecond Rails application and turn it into a 100 millisecond application, then 80% of the time I can reduce my server uh, count by one half and reduce the amount of uh, you know, cost I spend to deploy my application by one half. 
The second side of it is end user experience. How can I make this application feel faster for the customer? And backend is usually like 10% of that experience, like in a, in a 200 millisecond, 250 millisecond uh, server response time, if you just go into Chrome and fire up DevTools and start clicking around, each interaction is probably taking you at least one second and on first load, maybe five, 10 seconds. So the server response time is, is not even a, a fraction of that experience. So, you know, I, I, at least my experience was, and I think this is maybe becoming less common as, as time goes on. Most of the time in my day, it's been that the backend, backend people, you know, also have some front-end responsibility. Um, you know, I don't know if the full-stack developer is really dead or not, but um, so it, it just seems a waste for me to, to not talk about that. Um, just because if you really do care about the end user experience, then it's absolutely something you have to think about and concentrate on. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the tool, but there's a web performance tool out there that a lot of people use. And uh, yeah, it, it measures all the all these different things. So one of them is um, basically time to first load. And then, the, you know, you also have other things in there. So it's time before, you know, everything's kind of done, you know, so your JavaScript executes and, you know, rejiggers your page. And when that's all done, and yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of that stuff really does just boil down to, hey, you know, I got a response back in 100 milliseconds. And then, you know, it's another five seconds while JavaScript draws everything where it's supposed to go. And JavaScript alone, I mean, on, you know, not our fancy developer MacBook Pros or ThinkPads or whatever most of us use, uh, on average devices, uh, you know, God forbid an Android phone, uh, the time just to compile JavaScript is like one second per megabyte uncompressed. And most application bundles now, like it's like 10 megabytes is like lightweight, right? <laughs> and it compresses down to 200K. Oh, great. So it doesn't take that very long to get over the network. But then when it gets down to the, to the client, it takes, you know, 10, 15 seconds just to, just to compile and execute. So, you know, I mean, 100 milliseconds going to 50 milliseconds on your server response time. I mean, that's, that's not going to make a big difference in that number. I was going to say, if I'm not working, the device that I'm usually surfing the web on is the one that I pull out of my pocket. So, it's so interesting. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about this because when I when we're when you were coming on the podcast, I I knew about you. I know about uh, a little bit about your your work, and I didn't expect you to have such a focus on the front end. I think that's so refreshing. Um, the question then comes up, like. Does Ruby performance on the back end really matter for the majority of cases? Uh, if you care, if, if, if what you're working on is the end user experience, like I said, if you're so the two, the two things you can work on are scaling and uh, reducing server counts and costs, um, or you can work on end user experience and making the, the experience feel faster for the end user. If you're working on making the experience feel faster for the end user, 90% of the time, that's not going to involve Rails at all. Um, or not, I shouldn't say not involve Rails at all, but really not involve something, it's quote unquote, speeding up your Rails app. Maybe it's things that Rails has to deliver to make the front end faster or things that have to change, but you couldn't really say it was like the Rails app's fault. The, 10, the other 10% of the time tends to be uh, these sort of big, bad controller actions. Like uh, usually it's search. 90 percent of the time it's it's search um, and it's you know all the things that come with search like uh, displaying twenty five results on a page which trigger an n plus one right mm -hmm. everything everything that that uh, search entails tends to uh, create these controller actions that just take one plus second on average the other one I see all the time that's that's the uh, controller action that has to get fixed is uh, admin um, admin actions also tend to display you know, hundreds of records at once and uh, cause M plus ones because no one really cares about, no, no one really paid attention to uh, uh, what they were deploying on the admin because it's just the admin so the customer will never see it. But it does become a problem, um, especially at, at smaller companies that I work with where maybe they only have a couple of servers, a couple of processes running at one time. So if you have an admin action that takes 20 seconds to process, that process is doing nothing for 20 seconds, right? And on Heroku, um, maybe... There's other uh, requests being randomly routed to that process or that dyno. And now that dyno is just sitting there and there's nothing's going to get processed until this 20 second action is done, right? So 
there's lots of things that can happen from these bad controller actions and, and they tend to be quite bad. Um, but for the most part, that's not the majority of, of applications traffic is, is in these sorts of actions. It tends to be these sort of specialized things. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if, if I guess I would say for m- the majority of, of applications, the Ruby performance kind of comes in those, in those areas where controller actions are, are really, really bad. So let's talk about that N plus one problem that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I'm familiar with as well. Um, what would you do to, uh, I, I'm kind of asking a leading question to see, can uh, I draw this out of you, but what would you do in a case where you have users that do have N plus one queries? Do you solve that on the back end? Do you solve that on the front end? Or what are your options that you can do to make that fast? Mm. Well, 95% of the time with an N plus one, it's, my experience has been that it's just because the developer the developer doesn't know that there's an N plus one. Usually once we can find them, it's it's fairly straightforward to fix. I don't really usually come across cases where it's like, oh, this is going to be way too hard to even try to, you know, fix in any way in the back end. So if you can just fix it uh, on the back end, then that's the way I would do it. Um, my, I guess, methodology for fixing N plus ones is one I haven't, really heard repeated very often. I think a lot of times uh, what I've seen is people just shove gems like bullet into their gem file um, and just sort of expect that that means that they don't have N plus one problems anymore because bullet identified them all. Um, but that just... So guilty. Yeah. So, <laughs> I've done that. Yeah. It's, it doesn't work. I mean, well, bullet seems to get 80% of them, uh, but it's always those, you know, it's the 20% that gets you right. And uh, well, I want my money right. back open source project. <laughs> I want it back. (laughs) How dare you build a project that's not perfect for free? Yeah. Well, my thinking on a lot of this is, you know, if it finds 80% of them, start there, right? Definitely true. I think, I just wonder sometimes if, if maybe putting that in the gem file then sort of like causes some sort of like skill atrophy where that's where they stop, right? Like it's okay. Well, I've done the 80% and that's, enough. So I don't have to pay attention to my logs, you know, in development or, or, or in production. I don't have to look for N plus ones anymore. Um, because usually when I come into a shop and they have bullet and gem file, they have N plus one problems in production. And then I say, oh, well, this has a, this controller action has an N plus one. Here's how you need to fix it. They're like, oh, wow, I had no idea. So it, it's, it seems to be rarely the case where I see both bullet and the N plus one skills in place in one, in one developer shop. So my, my the philosophy has always been that people need to work with um, production-like de- uh, data in development. You need to have um, tables that have the same amount of rows, same kind of data. Um, you know, in 50% of places, you can just copy down production databases and maybe you know, change out um, email addresses and personally identified information. I've seen that a lot of places. And then just load that in developers' machines. I think that's ideal. Um, sometimes you can't. You know, I work with... Uh, uh, companies that uh, are affected by HIPAA and they can't do that. So even just getting like the most basic seeds.rb that looks somewhat like production is a huge benefit. Um, and to be able to work in development and then look at the, the logs that scroll by and standard out, right? And see, you know, user load or user select, like get repeated like 20 times in this pattern, right? In, 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 in the development log. So Working with development data, uh, working with production-like data and development, and and being able to look at a log and say, ah, that that looks like an N plus one, is because the same thing is repeating over and over. And uh, there's a, a new feature which I don't know if this got out in 5.2 or or when this came out, but um, Olivier Lacan um, uh, put it in um, based on an old snippet. I always used to, to, I still do throw into clients Rails applications, which just um, subscribes to active support notifications and writes the line. Uh, the line in your app that triggers an, uh, uh, a SQL query. So in your development logs, it'll say user select whatever, whatever. Uh, and then there's a little arrow and it says a line number that this, was tr- that this query was triggered by. And it makes fixing N plus ones just a breeze because you just see the line number, you go look, you're like, oh yeah, of course this would trigger that. So then you go in and fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have to say that, you know, I've, I've done some of it with Bullet. And then usually when I'm working on my application, um, I, I have an application that I've been working on for a while for uh, the podcast production. And, you know, I, I have hundreds of episodes. And so um, as I've been working, yeah, I've seen a couple of things where Bullet didn't catch for whatever reason. 
but I could see it floating by in the logs, right? In the development log, because it prints out every query that it's doing. And so I've had that work out for me as well. And I think just, just kind of being aware and seeing what's going on while you're working on your app will help with that. I think it's, it's interesting too, at least in my world, um, you know, we're talking about looking at the logs and paying attention and not just stopping when it starts to work. And, and it's, maybe that's a level of maturity where we just say, you know, yeah, we had a greenfield experience. And it was great. And it was fast. And nobody really had to think about anything. <laughs> and then transitioning into the grown-up production experience where we say, yeah, let me look at those logs again. And, um, you know, just because it's working doesn't mean it's, it's you know, what we want to have yet. Um, so I don't know. I, I find that I sometimes get impatient or the, the business around me sometimes gets impatient, wants to jump really quickly into the next features. As soon as we get the last ones done, <laughs> hey, let's go. Let's go do the same thing at the same pace forever and ever. And, and there's no consequences. You have absolutely just nailed it. I think that, especially in my, my larger clients, I, I feel like I see that all the time where the pressure to ship the next feature and, you know, um, what gets measured gets managed, right? And if you're looking at your sprint points every week and it's like, mm-hmm. all right, we're hitting those sprint points, right? And then performance has no way of getting into that point metric, right? Well, then it's just going to go down the drain. It's, it's no different than you know, security or technical debt in that, in that respect. Um, if it's not measured, if there's no... If the culture is hit the, hit the sprint points or hit the features, and then that's what's good, then that's the only thing that's going to get done. Um, so... Yeah, I I think I would actually I would blame it more on the the organization than than the maturity of the developer. Although there is of course the level where you know you're just getting started and just getting things working is a miracle. So like that, yes, like there's there's definitely a level of that for sure. But um, you know once you get once you get past the first year or so, I think it comes it really comes down to the to the culture. So then, how do you work that into your you know into your process so that it actually gets managed? If I had a perfect answer here you know, I, I would probably be able to build like three times as much as I do right now. The, the only thing that I, I think has, or I've seen work is being able to um, take performance issues and put them in like a kind of bug workflow mm-hmm. where you can, if, if you can sit down, and this is easier at larger places um, where they have more data that sort of evens out the curves during the day, right? Where um, if, if there is a 50% increase in it, in the time spent in a controller action, that's meaningful. And it's not just random noise in the data. Um, and to be able to look at controller actions or whatever and say, all right, if this increases by more than 10%, then that's a bug. Somebody, somebody clearly shipped something that doesn't work and we need to go, that's a bug. We need to go fix it. And just to get it in the bug workflow, then mm-hmm. um, I've seen that work. Um, so then it gets assigned a point value and it impacts yeah. your velocity. And that's, exactly. that's what you're me- measuring. I gotcha. Uh, the other thing that uh, I think can work is just to have data open, available, and long running so that everyone needs to be comfortable with looking at New Relic and or whatever it is and, and to be able to say, all right, my controller action that I work on every day looks like this and this is what it's supposed to look like. And then just to be able to look at it and just even if there's no formal threshold in place and say, oh, well, this, this looks way worse than it was before. Um, and especially having long running data, because performance is, is, can, can really be one of those like boiling the frog issues where mm-hmm. you just wake up one day and like, you're like, oh, wow, the application is really slow now. Um, but it, it gets that way sort of over time, just like technical debt. It's just a, a massing, you know, the snowball over time. And if you have long running data that goes back, you know, three, six months, um, then you can, you can go back over time and, and, and look at each commit and say, oh, this commit made things a lot worse. This commit made things a lot worse. Not, not letting, you know, and not having this problem where some commit three months ago broke everything, but you don't have the data resolution to go back and look at that commit from three months ago, right? And see right. that that was actually the change. Well, it's interesting, even if you did, that stuff recedes out of my head. And so I really don't want to stuff it back in there. <laughs> I need to work <laughs> on the current stuff because <laughs> my poor brain can't keep up with all the things. Yeah, well, that's why we have. Yeah, that's that's why you want to have the data somewhere that's not in your brain, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> stored away in your external brain. <laughs> I talk about sometimes an intelligent platform, and I'm being specific where I say it's awareness. Intelligence is awareness and functionality. I need awareness. I need functionality. That's intelligence, and it doesn't have to be in my brain. So, who around me knows things? Where is it stored? 
Can I see it easily? Can I see when something's wrong or off or we're trending the wrong direction? If I can build that as a platform around me, then my, my little brain is a very, very small part of the whole intelligence of the, of the system. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash rubyrogues. So I kind of want to dive back into some of the deeper technical issues around performance, if we can. I mean, we've talked about N plus one queries. I think people generally understand how to fix those with, at least in Rails with an includes or something. Um, So what other tricks are there? I mean, what other performance issues are people going to run into that, um, and, and I'm, I'm really kind of curious on the scaling end of things, you know, so mm. so I can answer more requests on my server and those requests come back more quickly. I mean, it. you said it, you know, it only impacts the user experience 10%, but, you know, that's still 10%. So, yeah, how do I make that work out better so that I can get more mileage out of my servers, maybe spend a little bit less on my infrastructure and things like that? Yeah, well, well, Jeff, well the answer is really is Ruby doesn't scale, right? I mean, <laughs> no, Rails can't scale. It doesn't work. Oh, I'm with you. That's actually the last chapter in my course. It's uh, rewrite everything in Elixir. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. It's about 130,000 words before that point. And then it's like, all right, give up. What are you doing in an hour? We'll just go over. Sounds like a terrible book. (laughs) (laughs) Twist ending written by M. Night Shyamalan. (laughs) What a twist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'm I'm pretty sure that both uh, David and Eric started out with apps in Rails at some point and they're both working in Elixir at this point. So. <laughs> we, we are. Hey, okay, but I, I do want to explain, and I don't know if this is fair, but um, when we decided to do Elixir on this current project, it was uh, how, do we get the, how do we get the exciting people that are pushing themselves forward? So we're going to grab something kind of new. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a lot less about performance or what we can get out of Rails, a lot more about who could we who could we get on the team? Um, I don't know if that worked out for us, but yes, we did. <laughs> and, and for me, it was it was all about because what I do is I have a, a company called Code Fund, which provides um, ethical ads for open source. Right, so we're getting hundreds of thousands of requests per day, and they all have to ex- execute this logic, and it has to happen concurrently. And unfortunately, right now, the concurrency story of Ruby is really, really bad. However. I wish that I had made the decision back then to say, okay, I'm just going to take the little part that requires this concurrent stuff to be in Elixir or whatever it might be, and then do the rest of the maintenance and management and application in in Rails because Rails allows people, at least allows me to, to execute so much quicker. And there's a lot of boilerplate and a lot of stuff that you have to do in Elixir and Phoenix that, that are just, that's just given to you in, in uh, Ruby. Well, this is sort of like the classic uh, like dismount off the top of the hype cycle, right? Where like at the top, we think that this tool is like, you know, amazing and can do everything and like everything should be written in Rails, right? And then as we come off, it's like, oh, no, actually nothing should be written in Rails. It's terrible. And then as you come up to the, you know, the, what are the productivity, whatever they call it, uh, it's like we figure out what this tool was actually meant for, which is building these like, you know, crud web applications, right? And yeah, I mean, like running an ad tech company on, on Rails sounds insane to me. Uh, I had friends that work in ad tech and like, yeah, like something uh, uh, built on the Erlang VM sounds like absolutely perfect. Like, yes, that's exactly what right. this is designed for. Go use that right. thing. Um, right. So yeah, I mean, that makes, that makes total sense to me. I so, am validated like, today. <laughs> so so uh, besides offloading things to systems that maybe are a better use case for part of your app, let's say the rest of it is written in Rails. So then what? I mean, do I start writing C or Rust or something like that and start offloading to that to make it fast or what? I you know, I think that the, the, this, um, the promise of... Uh, I, I, the, the promise is to, to, to offload parts of the critical path of the app 
into uh, extensions. So Rust, mm-hmm. C, whatever. I just don't think that there's enough. I, I, it seems like the, the, that, that ecosystem for making those extensions has been okay for a while now. And most of the things that can be productively put into an extension have already been, that's been done. Right. And uh, it's never really anybody's silver bullet. Um, you know, if you have a, a, an, a, uh, an API that serves JSON most of the time, um, you're not gonna like turn your app, you know, 25 X faster by changing which JSON serializer you're using. It just doesn't happen. Um, the, the kinds of things that can be put into these language extensions just don't seem to actually make up that much time, uh, of, of most people's applications. I think what I, what I do see a lot more frequently is just straight up misconfiguration of fairly simple or, or um, elementary, I guess, like application server settings. Um, I gave a big conference talk maybe a year or two ago um, about configuring Puma and Unicorn and whatever. And just like changing one number to the wrong thing can like just totally hose you. Um, I had a client that uh, had a, a, a big background kind of, it was almost, his app was like mostly background jobs. And he came to me and was like, oh, my sidekick is terrible. Like, it's just like, you know, it's hosing my, my server. Like everything takes 30 to 60 seconds to run. And uh, what was happening was his uh, database pool setting in active record was five and his concurrency setting in sidekick was 25. So 20 of those sidekick threads, if they're running at the same time, are sitting there waiting for database connections. And it wasn't, it wasn't because his workers were taking, like there was 30 seconds of work to do. It's because they were spending 29 and a half seconds waiting for an open database connection. And I just wonder, like so many of my clients come to me with these like sort of like really basic configuration problems that mostly these things affect throughput. Like in Puma, you know, we have tons of people that have the wrong settings in Puma and then like their throughput gets hosed. And yeah, it's it's not like, you know, magic speed juice that like your application is lacking. Sometimes it's just like, yeah, you get the wrong number in this config setting, man. Like you got to change that to something else. <laughs> I'm laughing because I've literally done that with those same numbers with Sidekick in my, my database pool. <laughs> Dude, it blows my mind. I wonder how many people are doing that. Like before, <laughs> I think it was like 4.2 when they introduced the, the Rails max threads environment variable. And then from then on, this is no longer an issue because... Uh, Rails will Rails and Sidekick will use the same uh, setting for concurrency, thread count, and database pool. And before that change, it's like I, I don't know how many people have this problem. It's like, ah! <laughs> well, it's it's so hard not to see the big picture. Like, oh, I got it running. It's working great. It's done. Then no, I don't see the big picture yet. Like, oh yeah, it's not working well. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, I think a lot of developers, especially in the Rails world, don't necessarily put performance first. They put shipping first because that's what Rails is the best at. And I think, Dave, you and I worked at a company where performance was always the question. You know, in fact, we would have a task force for performance to try and figure out what, what's going on. And eventually the company decided, like, you know what, we got to move to Go. And they moved a big part of the uh, of the business logic into Go, and it turned out to be the right decision for that time. But but we kept on pushing and pushing. How can we make Ruby faster? How can we make everything faster? What has happened recently? Like, what's the current state of Ruby today that will help us as developers uh, produce faster code than maybe from last year? Like, what's new in Ruby two five and 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 that stuff that's really helping us out? Well. From 2.0 until 2.3, we got a ton of improvements in garbage collection. And to the point where I think any improvement to GC future in, in C Ruby is basically just not going to make a difference for most people. Um, there is one patch I'm like sort of interested in from uh, Eric Wong of, of Unicorn. Um, called He's calling it Sleepy GC, which I really like. Um, but I, I think everyone kind of remembers back in the day, cargo culting uh, out-of-band GC. Um, from for Unicorn, uh, the idea was like this middleware that would basically turn off GC during a request and then turn it on um, after a request was done, and it would sort of so so you wouldn't have GC happening during the request. Um, the problem with that approach is uh, you'll also garbage collect more often than you need to, um, and you could be wasting CPU cycles um, running garbage collection just far more often than you have to. Aaron Patterson wrote a blog post about this and found that GitHub was spending like ten percent. 
extra CPU time just running GC that it didn't really need to. Um, most people probably shouldn't be running out of band garbage collection on on Ruby two dot three and up, um, it, just because the th the problem that out of band garbage collection solved have been solved in Ruby now. Uh, but what Sleepy GC will do is sort of similar but but better um, because it will actually realize when the CPU is idle, when it's not doing anything, and then fill those cycles up with garbage collection. So it's a little bit smarter, and that's why it's sleepy, is because it only is supposed to use idle time. Um, so that's interesting. Um, the JIT coming in 2.6 is obviously a huge deal. Um, not so much because it will make 2.6 faster. It probably will not. Uh, it will probably make most Rails applications slightly slower if you turn it on. But it is a massive sort of brick lane, I think, going on for 2.7 and 2.8 and, and 3.0. That makes me very excited, actually. Um, you know, what's sort of held us back in, in, in Ruby for a long time is the fact that, you know, our VM is this thing that's been cobbled together in C by like 24 guys over, you know, in their spare time over 25 years. And, you know, it's not, you know, uh, some fancy Java VM that has hundreds of, of programmers and thousands and thousands of dollars behind it. Um, but we're starting to get now some of these fancier features and um, JIT being, being one of those things. Um, and specifically the way that, that it's being done with uh, using uh, GCC is, I think, really interesting. And we can kind of take a lot of advantage of things that are already built out in GCC um, to make Ruby faster. So on the horizon, that's, that's definitely interesting. Um, outside of that, I really am interested in the Truffle project, Truffle Ruby. That's Truffle Ruby is as of maybe like a year or two ago, now the largest paid Ruby implementation. They have seven plus people working full time on a Ruby implementation, which is sort of insane. I think right now on Ruby core, it's like three or four. So if you're not familiar with Truffle Ruby, it's a project by Oracle to run Ruby on the Truffle plus Grawl language projects, which I really honestly can't explain to you because I don't know enough about how to, you know, write my own compiler and languages and stuff. Um, but you can just think of Truffle as sort of like a build your own VM sort of project um, sponsored by Oracle. And what they're really doing is just trying to create, you know, runtimes for popular languages. So people will be like, oh, Truffle is cool and it really works. The JavaScript version is a lot further along. So there's a, there's a Truffle JavaScript VM which apparently, I'm not sure how, but how far it is in terms of feature completeness, but in terms of performance, it's supposed to be on parity with V8. And it's like 80,000 lines, which is insane uh, compared to the size, complexity, and history of the V8 project. Um, so, you know, I think it's really interesting. It has a potential to be sort of dark horse um, in terms of, of sort of free Ruby performance. Um, they're also, because of all the, the tools in the, in the Truffle Ruby project, they're able to do things like run C extensions, which was always the hang up on JRuby, right? It was like, well, you can't run C extensions. Uh -huh. um, but uh, Truffle is able to bring in this experimental thing called Sulong, um, which basically lets them use LLVM to run C extensions inside of Truffle Ruby. Um, it's just sort of this insane, insane project. And um, I'm very interested in how far it's, it's gotten along so far and it will continue to do so in the future because there's so many, there's seven guys that are, and, and that are paid to work on it. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that project will probably evolve into, I think they've talked about this where they, they there's going to be like a community edition and then like some sort of professional edition. So it's not going to be like everybody's, you know, Ruby implementation that they run all the time. Um, you know, it's probably going to be for the, the larger companies that can afford it. Right. Um, but even that is massive improvement, I think for the, for the ecosystem and the community, because we're going to have more people that don't rewrite their applications, um, and just, because a, a rewrite is, you know, a, a, even if it was like a $10,000 a month license, right? That's a, that's a heck of a lot cheaper than a rewrite. So uh, I think that's kind of what they're going for over there. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's not going to ever replace MRI or anything. We're still going to be using MRI, you know, for, for forever. Um, but uh, really interesting project and something I'm really paying attention to with uh, close interest. Have you used it yet? No, and that was because up until now it didn't work with CHRuby. Uh, you had to like go and s like sign a license agreement or something to download it. They've they've finally gotten to the point where they they've figured out how they can legally like you know just give you a, a, a HTTP link and just download things. Mm -hmm. um, I've been kind of waiting for the point where it can actually run a Rails application until I start to get really interested. 
Um, they're close, but not there. So they can run C extensions right now. Um, but I, I think Nokagiri in particular isn't working. I think OpenSSL is working. Um, but they're like, you know, it's, it's like just getting there to the point where it can run, can run a real Rails app. So um, maybe look for that in the next year or two. Yeah, it looks like it's an active issue right now on getting those working. Yep. Yep. Interesting. What about uh, Crystal? What are your thoughts on Crystal? Um, you know, typing just doesn't really interest me. <laughs> that's, that's the long and short of it. I just don't, I just don't care for it. You know, I think, um, this came up again on Twitter, like a month ago, we were talking, I was actually talking uh, to Chris Seaton, the head of the truffle Ruby project about what percentage of Ruby method calls are, are monomorphic versus, uh, so what, what, what percentage of Ruby calls receive one type versus many types and, Aaron, I know, did the numbers on this. And uh, I don't know if he did it on GitHub or a different Rails application, but he did the numbers on this like a year or two ago. And like something like 95% of, of Ruby Rails app call sites only take one type. And that's like sort of disappointing to me. Like that doesn't... The, the takeaway from that is not that, oh, so we don't really need types. Uh, the, the takeaway for me is like, oh, we're using... There's this incredible tool called duct typing that we're not using. And that's that's terrible. Like the times when it does save you in an application, it's like, oh man, this would have been so much harder if I had to, you know, uh, do this with static um, uh, static types or non-dynamic types. And I just, I, do, I, I don't want to give up that tool. Um, I love, I love dynamicism. <laughs> I, I use it. I feel like I use it a lot. So I don't want to give it up. Well, I think that it's actually the intent of Matt to bring the typing system into Ruby. Well, uh, the you know this, I think that's what I've heard too. The, the thoughts are very unclear still. Um, this was a big topic at RubyCut when I went in twenty seventeen, um, and I think the I think everyone's interested, and they're all like, "Oh, static types are interesting." There are some people on the core team that are very much like, "Yes, Ruby should be statically typed." Um, that are like, you know, way on that side of the spectrum, right? And I think Matt's himself is probably way further on the other side. And he's trying to figure out what interesting ideas he can glean from the opposite side of the spectrum. Um, you know, I think the only thing that's been talked about with any sort of real seriousness is um, a type check um, that will basically say like, all right, well, you're calling dot two S on an object that could not possibly have that thing defined. So blow up and don't start. Um, so that's like soft typing, right? Um, but from a VM perspective, it's really, that's, that's hard and it's complicated. So um, they've, I think they're still thinking about it. Um, maybe the, yeah, I guess that's not, so that, that's, that seems to, 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 for my sense, sort of the closest that we're getting to, to that kind of discussion. Yeah, I've I've heard rumors about optional typing, which is kind of what you're describing. I've heard rumors about um, like type annotations. You know, so essentially you say, look, this is going to have this kind of an interface on it, or it's going to be, you know, you should expect this kind of type to come back. I don't know. Um, I, I think there are trade-offs for all of these. And I think it's really just going to come down to what empowers people without having a, a steep impact on making people rewrite stuff. And annotation specifically is something that Matt's has talked about as being something he really doesn't like. And I, that's, that's, that's probably one of my number one things I, I wouldn't want in a typing system for Ruby is something where I have to say, you know, expect such and such type or, you know, um, that kind of thing. I, it doesn't feel dry to me. Um, and that's been Matt's objection to it. And, if anything gets adopted, I, I really hope it doesn't require me to throw in comments that say, you know, this type, that type. I really I don't want to do that. That seems that seems antithetical and antithetical to the to the to what makes Ruby so fun to write um, to me. But in any case, I don't I don't think from a performance perspective that this is something that must happen or has to happen um, for performance to keep moving forward. Um, I I just don't think that uh, the history of, of language development shows that, that you must be statically typed to be faster. And, uh, you know, I think, we can, I think we can figure it out. Yeah, the, the things that I've seen typing really make a difference in, and this is something that came out of my work with Angular, and, you know, we have a podcast about that, and we talk a lot about it in TypeScript, is that the, the 
typing helps with the tooling more than really, you know, any major benefit in performance and things like that. You can take some performance shortcuts, but for the most part, it's it's not a major win in, in that sense. But a lot of the tools that are coming out of the TypeScript world are really, really nice. And so a lot of that, you know, pays off. But yeah, I, I think it really just depends on what people's workflow is and what they're doing with it. And then what kinds of shortcuts it really can give us. Because I think if it gave us a major, like a, a very, very major performance boost and it wasn't too intrusive, you know, I, I think most people would go along with it and be okay with it. But yeah, I, I think it just depends on what all of these different things mean for how people work with Ruby. I mean, I for one hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> I, I hope it doesn't come to, you know, some costs must be imposed on Ruby developers as a whole by yeah. the VM or by the, the team in order to get us to the next step. I, 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 you know, maybe like looking at how the core team has been thinking about frozen immutable strings is maybe some, some guide to this. Um, I'm not sure actually anymore, like how official it is that in 3.0, all strings will be frozen and immutable. Um, but that was sort of a proposal that was floated like really early, like 2.1, maybe even 2.0. Um, and it was initially floated as a performance thing. It was like, oh, well, this will make, you know, our design and the VM much more efficient or fast or whatever. That turned out not to be really that true. Uh, mm -hmm. It just doesn't have that much of an impact. Um, but they were very conscious during that process about, well, how much of a cost is this going to impose? How much, how, like, you know, how many more times are you going to have to, you know, deal with uh, not being able to modify a string in place or something? And, um, you know, I, they're very conscious of that in, in Ruby core, I think, and I hope they continue to be. Yeah. So one thing I was wondering, um, we, we've been talking for almost an hour, but I, I'm curious. So when you come into uh, uh, getting us, this is also going to get us back on track. Uh, but, uh, when you go into a company, you know, to help them, um, fix the performance in their app, I mean, what are the first couple of things that you do to either instrument things or identify the slow areas? Uh, you know, I probably spend, which is funny because I'm starting a new client today, so I got to go do this. Uh, I, I probably spend a couple of days just living in the APM whatever one is their APM of choice. So most people seem to use New Relic these days. It seems it's fine. Um, sometimes I see Skylight. Um, Scout is becoming more popular. Um, so I just spend a lot of time in the APM. Um, and usually I'm the first person to have done that for a while. Um, and I try to get a sense of uh, just how bad things are. Are there certain, are there certain controller actions which um, are fitting this profile I talked about earlier of... Uh, one plus second average response times. What do those controller actions do? Is there a pattern in the controller actions where all of these type of controller actions uh, are are slow? Um, the is and I'm looking for patterns as well in the team and saying, well, this does this team tend to make the same type of mistake over and over? Um, are there certain controllers which are you know maybe if it's a bigger company, certain controllers that are are used or worked on by particular teams, but they tend to make the same mistakes over and over. Um, and what I'll tend to do is look at the APM, look at especially the, the tracing uh, features that they have and say, all right, well, this uh, new relic, it'll, uh, you can look at the average trace and say, all right, well, it spends 80% of its time doing such and such. Uh, and then I'll go back to the code and I'll say, all right, this is, if I just look at the code here, does it, is it immediately obvious to me why this is slow? And if it isn't, I set the application up in development and try to reproduce in development. Um, right. And if the fix is not immediately obvious, something I've seen before, the workflow is usually um, in development. Try to come up with a benchmark, um, which looks roughly similar to the production behavior. So I will use um, benchmark uh, IPS. It's a project by Evan Phoenix to set up a benchmark and say, okay, this particular method or controller action takes, you know, uh, we'll do a thousand iterations per second. That's where I start. And then I do, uh, then I open up a profiler such as RubyProf. Um, RBSpy is kind of the new one on the block by Julia Evans. Um, there's StackProf. I, I usually use RubyProf. Um, so I'll fire up a profiler. And then I've got my, once I got my benchmark set up and I'll say, all right, so if it does a thousand iterations per second, what is it spending each iteration actually doing? 
And then that, that lets you say, oh, this is spending 50% of its time doing this in this particular line of code. Go and fix that. You go back to the benchmark and say, how much did that change improve or not improve my benchmark? And keep doing that until I get some kind of impact. Um, then I'll make a PR. And you know, I, I, I don't like making pull requests for performance without the numbers. So that's why I tend to make my performance process fairly formal with um, putting down benchmarks and numbers and profiles and putting those all in the pull requests. So we're all on the same page that I don't just think this is faster. It actually is faster in development. Because even that isn't a guarantee that it will work in production. There's a million things that are different between your development and production environment. Um, so, you know, it's not even a guarantee, but, uh, it helps to be as rigorous as possible. Um, so that's, that's sort of my general process is, is find problems in the production APM, reproduce them in development, create a benchmark, profile it to figure out how, why the benchmark is the way it is. And then keep looking at the benchmark as I improve each line of, of code or whatever, and then pull and put that up in a pull request and, and deploy. And it's really just the scientific method, really, right? Like it's just going through and creating experiments and, and looking at the data. I imagine you have to have a certain type of um, resilience or passion to, to, to dig in and find that because to me, that sounds so terribly boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, there are every company I've worked at has always had, uh, you know, not everyone on the team enjoys doing that kind of work. Um, like I said, at the outset, I've, I've always enjoyed taking the number and making it bigger, <laughs> you know, or, or smaller as the, as the measurement may be, um, that kind of work is just so concrete to me. And I just love that. Um, I get a big kick out of that. So sometimes, you know, to the point where like, I, I concentrate on that sort of work too much, uh, you know, where, where it doesn't matter. So that's why I got into performance only consulting. So I get to work on that all the time. And I don't get, uh, you know, yelled at by PM for not shipping, uh, you know, whatever features I was supposed to do. Um, so I don't know what that personality type is. Um, you know, I, I, I probably am slightly biased because the people I interact with now mostly are, are people that are concerned with performance issues and, you know, care enough to buy my course and get on our Slack channel and talk about that kind of thing. So it, maybe it seems to me that more people are interested in that than really are. Um, uh, but, uh, I don't know. I love it. I, there's definitely a, some people that, that I think can, can get a kick out of it at least. So where can people find your course? Uh, it's online at railsspeed.com. Nice. I just uh, updated it for like a version 2.0 to kind of get it up to date with Rails 5.2 or Rails 5.2 and Ruby 2.6 slash 2.5. Um, so there's uh, some new interviews in it. And uh, I'm actually, I, I mentioned RB spy in passing there. So there's a new profiler called uh, RB Spy. Um, it's written in Rust by Julia Evans, um, and it's uh, it's it's an interesting take on Ruby profiling. So uh, I might be putting up an interview with her soon. Um, so yeah, it's uh, that's that's been fun. It's that's probably my main my main thing is uh, selling that course. So uh, spoiler alert, it ends with telling you to switch to Elixir. So just oh yeah, <laughs> of course it does. A little bit of a spoiler. Yeah yeah yeah. Very, very cool. So uh, I guess the last question I have on performance is, do you tell people, because I've heard people put like benchmarks into their uh, CI and things like that. Do you recommend to people that they do that? Or is that just completely wacko? No, absolutely. Um, I love seeing that. I, I try to do that on my open source projects. I'll, have, I'll just have like a benchmarks folder in the root of the, the gem. And I don't... I don't think you necessarily have to formalize it so much as like putting it in CI and saying like making it part of the CI run and like really like making sure those numbers end up somewhere and like mm -hmm. graphing them. You don't have to get that fancy. I think it's even just, it's just valuable to have a, a benchmark for a particular feature or method or whatever that you know is in a performance critical part of the app and just having it in a benchmarks folder so that people can just go, you know, Ruby, uh, whatever the file is and run it and they, they just know, they should just know that when they touch certain features or, or whatever, they can go in and say, all right, well, how did that affect the benchmark? And just check it against master, right? It, just that is like 50 to 60% of the benefit. Um, so uh, as is an example, um, I'll just plug uh, the gem I maintain. It's the uh, Ruby client for the Sentry uh, error monitoring service. So mm -hmm. if you go to 
the Get Sentry uh, GitHub organization and look for the Ruby client. I have a benchmarks folder in that app that I'm in, in that uh, thing that I maintain, and I'll just I'll just look at PRs and say, all right, well, let's run this benchmark on the feature branch and let's run it on master and just look at the look at the change. Does it make an impact? Um, I even have allocation benchmarks, so like I can see how uh, memory is different. Memory allocation is different between each uh, each uh, feature. Um, I think it's a massive benefit. I, I I wish more people would do it. Cool. And just in the interest of disclosure, I didn't ask you to talk about Century, but they are a sponsor of this show. So. Oh, really? Good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I did an interview. Incidentally, if people are interested in it, in fact, I should probably just publish it on this feed. But um, when I was at Microsoft Build, I did an interview with their CEO. David? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. David's a great guy. So that was a lot of fun. We talked about, um, you know, monitoring and yeah, finding errors and things like that. So anyway. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, get to some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. David, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I've got two today. Uh, the first one is this great summary. If, if you haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow yet, um, do it. And if you don't have time to do it, this pick I have is a summary of all the chapters. Beautiful book. It's a way to see the big picture and, and a way to see how my thinking might draw me to, to leap to conclusions too quickly, um, you know, where I, I get in my own way. So um, it's just every chapter of Thinking Fast and Slow in seven minutes. So that's that pick. And the other one I've been doing for a couple of months, it's from Poem A Day. It's from poems.org or poets.org, I think. Um, but I've got the, the link in the, in the show notes. And the thing I love about reading poetry a little bit every day is it changes a little bit of how I'm noticing the world. It gets me more into that zone I like to be in as a developer where I'm noticing things, I'm seeing what's different, what's the same. Um, my, my mind is awake, I'm open, <laughs> ready to work. And so having that kind of a habit has been very useful for my, uh, just for my, my, my mental health and my productivity as a, as a developer. Very cool. Uh, Eric, do you have some picks for us? I got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is a talk that was given at the Mountain West Ruby Conference in 2016 uh, by a good friend of mine, Brandon Hayes. And the talk is called Surviving the Framework Hype Cycle. And he went over that hype cycle that, um, that you mentioned, uh, Nate, and applied it to front-end frameworks. And it's like, how do you keep up with the latest and make sure that you are work you are you are learning what you should be learning uh for long-term uh long-term success and it, he talks about like uh, how every single front-end framework goes through this hype cycle and then at the very end it becomes like okay it's not very popular but it's very very productive mm -hmm. uh wonderful talk uh link in the show notes and then the other one i have is um i've I'm, as you probably heard already I've, i love golf i've taken up golf and um my dad he was a, a pro golfer back when he was younger at a, at a resident golf course here and so every time I go with him, I'm just mesmerized by how good he is. And so finally, he said, let me tell you a secret. One of the secrets is you got to stay on top of your drivers. You have to stay on top of it because the technology really, really, really advances year by year by year. So he gave me this, um, this tailor-made M1 driver. And I tell you what, it's, it's magic. Um, 
I go out and I take it and I hit a consistent 230, 240 yards, ball after ball after ball, landing within five to 10 yards of each other. So it's really pretty amazing. If you love golf, the M1 driver is, is absolutely phenomenal. And just so you know, he, up, he upgraded to the M4 driver. So I, but that's like too expensive for me. So those are my picks. Eric, I think you just spent a couple hundred dollars of my money right there. That pick. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I'm going to jump in with some picks. Um, first of all, I got a new set of clubs. It's not a, a very expensive set of clubs, but it was on this, on sale on Prime Day. So I think I got like a four or $500 set of clubs for like 200 bucks. So I was pretty happy about that. Um, and I'll put a link to those uh, clubs in the show notes. I don't think they're the top of the line ones, but they're, they're decent. And yeah, Eric and I have gone golfing before. I think we've talked about it on the show before. And then one other thing that I just want to shout out about is that uh, I went to podcast movement last week as we record this. And I got really inspired to um, put together some videos and some eBooks and things like that. And so I'm going to be focusing a bit of time on that. Um, And the thing that I've got running right now, and I'm pretty sure that this this episode will go out right before the sale ends. Um, and if it doesn't, I'll put uh, a coupon code in that's good for a week after this comes out. But um, I'm putting together a book and video course on how to find a job. I just get asked about that all the time. Um, how do I find my first job? Or um, I found my first job through some influence at the boot camp I attended. And now I don't know how to search for a job. Or the other one is, is I've got a bunch of experience, but I'm remote and I don't want to move. You know, I, I don't live near a tech area. And so how do I find that job? Um, and I've been helping people in all those situations find jobs. And so I've just distilled a lot of it down and I'm going to be putting out this ebook and it's going to come out around Labor Day. In fact, I've, I've basically uh, committed to having it out by Labor Day. So if you buy it before Labor Day on a pre-sale, you can get it for half off. Um, so if you're interested in the ebook or the video course or both, then definitely check that out. Uh, the video course will of course, go into a little bit more detail as far as I'll, I'll be interviewing some folks and I will also be, um, you know, doing some dialogue and things like that, which will probably appear in the book. But if you want to catch kind of the inflection and things like that, that'll all, all be in that video course, um, along with just, you know, some off the cuff riffing and stories and things like that that may not show up in the book. But uh, yeah, anyway, so whichever method is your preferred way of learning, uh, you can go check that out. If you go to getacoderjob.com, um, you should be able to then get the book or the course. Um, or you can go to devchat.tv and just click on our uh, our link for products or courses. So anyway, um, check that out. Uh, Nate, what are your picks? First pick is J.E. Malloc, developed by Facebook. Uh, the, the actual J.E. stands for the guy's name. I don't remember. It's like J. Evans or something, Malloc. Uh, I like to call it just excellent Malloc. Uh, I wrote a post a while ago about why the standard glibc malloc can double or worse, um, uh, so it can have a double or worse impact on memory usage for multi-threaded Ruby applications, particularly Sidekick, um, but also Puma. Basically, it causes excessive fragmentation, um, which can be fixed by malloc. It's one of the few sort of silver bullets, I think, that are, is currently valid in, in the Ruby performance world. So give malloc a look. Give it a shot. Um, there's a Heroku build pack. You can run it on Heroku. Um, and uh, yeah, so give that a shot. Um, second thing would be uh, the Netflix show Queer Eye. It is incredible. Amazing television. Uh, everyone I've recommended it to has absolutely loved it. I am not usually a thing for like reality television, despite the fact that I was on it. Um, but uh, incredible show, super good. And the third thing would be uh, to try Kerbal Space Program if you haven't already. Uh, and if you have, try it with uh, either the KOS or KRPC mods. Uh, KOS adds a internal operating system to your rockets in the game. So if Kerbal Space Program, if you've never heard of it, it's a game where you build rockets and send them into space. Uh, KOS lets you write programs for your rockets in this little Kerbal operating system language. Um, and KRPC is what you might think it is, a remote procedure call for Kerbal Space Program. And you can actually control your rockets with Ruby, Python, JavaScript, whatever, um, and, uh, and write programs to launch rockets. Uh, it's super fun. I love it. Uh, I did a conference talk about a year ago about writing a program in Ruby that was inspired by the Saturn V launch program. 
um, and use the architecture of the Saturn V uh, Apollo guidance computer um, to inspire a program that would launch a rocket. And uh, it's super fun. So uh, give that a look-see. Awesome. And go ahead and put those links in the chat so we can get them in the show notes. I've also heard a lot of good things about Queer Eye. And it's interesting because I've been hearing it from some folks that I, I guess tend to be on on the right politically, which traditionally people don't associate with wanting to watch a show about queer anything. But the reason they recommend it is because apparently these the the hosts are really terrific people and they go talk to in a lot of ways. And it's kind of this coming together of ideas and people are really good to each other. And I've heard that that's one of the things that really drives the show and makes it terrific. So um, I've been wanting to watch it for that reason, just to see, because we hear people yelling at each other from both sides all the time. And for me, just seeing people kind of harmonize and understand each other really appeals to me. So we can actually be good to each other. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine that. All right, Nate, if people want to find you online, where do they go? I'm, I'm assuming Twitter, blog. Yeah, I'm mostly a Twitter guy. So um, Nate Berkepec on Twitter. Uh, and my blog is at speedshop.co. Awesome. Very nice. All right. Well, we'll wrap this one up. Thank you again for coming, Nate. Hey, thanks very much for having me. All right. We will sign off. We will be back next week. Take care. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.